0: It didn't start with you, but it can end with you. My name is Andrea, and this is Adult Child. Welcome back to Adult Child where we take a deep dive into the impact of growing up in a dysfunctional family. Ahoy, my dear shit shows. For any new listeners, my name is Andrea, and I am the, the captain of this shit show ship. Shit show ship. Say that three times fast. Shit show ship. Shit show ship. Shit show ship. Shit show ship. ship show ship. You've definitely turned this off by now if you're a new listener. Moving along, folks. So today we are diving deep with Dr. Marielle Bouquet. She is a psychologist and she is an expert in intergenerational trauma. So she has a book that is coming out at the beginning of the year. It's called Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. So we are talking about her own intergenerational trauma, how it surfaced for her, what healing has looked like for her and how she came up with her brand of healing that she utilizes with her clients, which integrates holistic and somatic practices like sound bath meditation and breath work. So this is a goodie. You'll love her. It's fascinating. So this is a topic that we've discussed a few times on the pod intergenerational trauma. I want to point you to my episode with Mark Wolin, who is a thought leader in this intergenerational trauma shit. He has a book, It Didn't Start With You. I'll include that in the show notes. So I wanted to share actually a a pivotal aha that I've had. It's actually just been in the last few days I've had the realization that I think I am unconsciously carrying some of my mom's shit, like some of my mom's shame. I've told this story before, but I, I just think this story is so profound. And then I'll then kind of connect that to, to my aha. So Mark Willin, who I mentioned earlier, he's the author of "It Didn't Start With You, He was working with a patient and she was a teenage girl and she was a cutter and she would cut herself so deeply, you know, almost to death. One day they're in a session with her and he, he gives her a pen and he says, what do you think right before you're about to cut yourself? Uh, And she says that I don't deserve to live. And so then he asks her like, what in your life could have like has happened to you that would make you feel that way? She had no experiences that would lead her to, to hold that belief, the belief that I don't deserve to live. So then he, not exactly sure like how this came up, but he ended up asking about her grandparents. And he then found out that, I don't know if it was the mom's side or the dad's side, but one of her grandparents, the grandma was driving the car drunk. The grandfather was in the passenger seat Uh, They get into an accident and the grandfather flies through the window shield, gets lacerated to death and dies. And so here she is like cutting herself, just like her grandfather was, uh, you know, cut to death by the the car windshield and saying, I don't deserve to live, which is, I'm sure what the grandmother uh, who was driving drunk was thinking And so that's what Mark Lowen talks about a lot as it relates to carrying this intergenerational trauma. He calls it like core language. And so that essentially would be like when we have some sort of a faulty or limiting belief, but it doesn't have any context within our lives, right? Like the belief that I don't deserve to live. And it's in those moments that we could potentially be carrying shit That is not really ours. And so I've been sharing about my journey with procrastination and self-sabotage and just kind of my inability to get my shit together and adult and really, you know, thrive and live in my full potential which has been like just such a challenge for me. And I've been sharing about this all along and I really don't like sharing about it. I really feel vulnerable when I talk about this with y'all, but there is just this lack of belief in myself. And so it came to me that I wonder if, you know, part of this is my mom, like I'm carrying part of my mother's burden. You know, when I think about my mom, you know, she's such an amazing woman, but she has not been able to live in her potential. Like she's not been able to live the life that she could live because of her battle with alcoholism. So I think that there could be some sort of a connection there. I thought about how my mom has told me that, you know, her dad, he really wanted her to just go to college and become a a PE teacher and a track coach. And she wanted to go work in business and in finance. And I think that the message that she received from her father was, who do you think you are? You can't be successful in that. Like, why do you think that you could do that? I know that there was a lot of shaming from my grandfather, a lot of like putting down and belittling my mother. And so I'm, I'm thinking that perhaps I'm carrying some of that too. So I'm feeling like these are some pretty pivotal ahas. I just started doing IFS with my therapist, and we're really going to be looking at this stuff. I'm hopeful. And uh, I really just want to thank you all for allowing me this opportunity to like work through my shit, like with all of y'all. Thanks for accepting me and not judging me and understanding me and uh, giving me the opportunity to interview all these different people and talk to all y'all, which allows me to you know, continue to heal and grow. So I just want to express my utmost gratitude to each and every one of you. And I'm so glad that we are on this journey together. I would have it no other way. If we could all be normal, I wouldn't want it. I want us all to be total shit shows because that's more fun. We're more interesting people, right? (sighs) So let's get the damn show on the road. But first. Let's talk about why you, yes, you need to damn the join shit show. This is my online uh, support community where I host weekly Zoom groups. We have discussion boards. We have all sorts of shit going on in there with a bunch of amazing shit shows. So I was talking with friend of the pod, fellow shit show, Tiffany Carter, who is also a badass business coach. She wants me to point this out to you guys. There hasn't been a single person that has joined the community that has not said, I wish I had joined sooner. Like all these people out there that have been listening for months or a year and have been wanting to join and then finally did. They always say, I wish I would have joined much sooner. And I just want to ask you, like, what is your healing worth to you? Like give it a shot. You can always quit after one month. You deserve healing and you deserve recovery and you really need community. Like you really, really, really need community. If we really want to do this work, we must do it with others who are doing the work too. So damn the join shit show right now see a link in show notes next give me a little follow on the insta on the tiktok and last but not least give me a damn five star rating on apple on spotify thank you love you all all right y'all we're in for a damn treat we have dr mariel bouquet the book title is amazing i'm shocked that you get it like that there wasn't already a book title with this yeah break the cycle yeah you know i mean
1: i think it just made sense right for that to be the actual book title because that is in essence what we're doing and i was actually shocked myself to be frank i was also shocked that we didn't have a very structured clinically derived in book with that title uh-huh. protocol yeah for healing trauma that fans through generations that had that title like i was in shock myself and also grateful because then you know I had an opportunity to produce this book
0: yeah and I'm sure it's like such a for SEO purposes I would imagine you're gonna kill it you know
1: (laughs) well I I hope so I you know I hope the SEO and the algorithm work in my favor to get the word out to as many people as possible because I really do believe that first of all like this generation we have so much motivation as a collective of people to actually disrupt these cycles more than in generations past. And there's a lot of reasons for that. I mean, like also generations past didn't have the language, the tools, the access, the technology, like data. There's so much that was lacking in those times that we now have. So hopefully that means that, you know, more people would be willing to heal and have the tool itself to heal.
0: Yeah, it's really quite remarkable when you think about just from the perspective of what we know about the brain now, you know, compared to before Yeah,
1: the brain. I remember when I was first studying the brain, we were instructed to the fact that we know very little about it. And I remember my neuroscience professor, the first one that I had, actually identifying us as being in the novel stages of understanding the brain, the brain structure, and the ways in which we utilize the brain as humans. And that was very humbling, right? Like we're in a neuroscience course, but we're also learning
0: that we kind of know very little. We don't know shit. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Okay. So the term adult child, let me just give you a little rundown and I'm going to pull this thing up. It's called the laundry list. It's the 14 common characteristics of an adult child. And I'm curious to see which ones resonated with you at some point in your life. But so the term first came about, it was, you're familiar with Al-Anon, I'm sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it was basically like a group of, um they had been in Alateen and then they kind of graduated into Al-Anon and they realized that they couldn't, they couldn't really relate to what was being discussed in there. Cause it was mostly like people talking about their spouses and They were trying to, you know, survive. They were just coming out of growing up in an alcoholic home. And so they started their own group. And that was around the same time that the mental health and medical community was realizing how alcoholism impacted, you know, the whole family, not just the alcoholic. And so there were these common traits that came about, which I'll show you. But then it wasn't until about, it was 10 years later that they realized that there were other types of dysfunctional families other than just alcoholism that could produce an adult child. So now it's adult children of alcoholic and dysfunctional families. So I hit my adult child bottom at nine years sober. And it was after Well, it was really I dated two alcoholics named Brian back to back. <laughs> and that was after many years of shitty, wow. toxic relationships. Mm-hmm. But here's my deal. Like, I grew up with an alcoholic mom. Dysfunctional family, but like I was never sexually or physically abused. You know, all of my needs were always accounted for. Most of my wants were always accounted for. Truly, how bad could it have been? You know, and then I started acting out from 12 to 19. I got sent to treatment for the first time in the eighth grade, Mm -hmm. and I had no idea how severely I was impacted. And I had no idea for years and years and years that what I was experiencing in dating was complex PTSD.
1: Mm -hmm. Like no clue. Yeah.
0: So let me pull up this list for you. And I want to see what resonates or maybe what resonated prior to your healing journey. Wow. You know,
1: upon looking at this list, just like really kind of scanning through it. The one thing that is almost like an unsaid and we don't tend to typically just call it out for what it is, is the fact that there are usually two generations that are like a part of this process. It's, You know we look at other people in our lives and or we interact with other people in our lives that are typically like the first one authority figures right or individuals who are caretakers or who are adults within our lives and that's really kind of where our interactions with any of these in essence like places of emotional injury tend to start automatically my my mind goes there because also I'm like kind of like structured to always think about the generations uh-huh, so it makes a uh-huh. lot of sense for me and I always think my question is always to what extent do we have a parent that also became isolated and afraid of people and authority figures all the time the whole right? time right? 100% to what of the extent, time. <laughs> yeah like to what extent do we have parents who were also approval seekers, aka people pleasers also, right, and had an identity loss within some aspect of their own lifetime. And were modeling those very same behavioral dynamics to a child who is now 12 years old, who is adopting that for themselves, right? Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's literally like those generational through lines that are kind of implicitly in this laundry list but aren't really always like spoken of in a very explicit way so that we can then actually address it from a family perspective rather than just the individual. Cause it's not a person in isolation that is hurting. It's a person in family and community.
0: Oh, absolutely. You know, I think the big thing for me was the recognition that like a, a dysfunctional family and a loving family aren't mutually exclusive and the purpose of like that you know, cause I think one of the biggest blocks is people feel like they're betraying their families by talking about it mm-hmm. when it's really just about identifying the causes and conditions that made us the way that we are. And that like, this doesn't just it didn't start with our parents and it just like pop out of nowhere, right? Like, they're just a product of their upbringing, just as we are. Yeah, you know, and that allows us to not just have
1: an element of compassion for the wounding that occurred for them. But it also allows us to have an opportunity to really understand how we can do the healing sometimes even for them, right? Like whatever healing they weren't able to do, it can further motivate us to actually do the healing because we see how it impacted their lives and we see how we do not wish for our lives to be that way for decades upon decades.
0: Mm -hmm. So you were in your
1: 20s when this stuff started to pop up for you, right? I was, yeah. And, you know, it started to pop up just as feelings, Not as like
0: context, because I didn't have the context like many of us. And what was your understanding of your upbringing prior to that experience?
1: Well, you know, I grew up fairly economically impoverished, so poor, right? Even in our town that was, in essence, like a very low income town, we were still fairly poor for our Yeah. And my mother actually grew up in a town where I remember when I visited her hometown back in Dominican Republic, her hometown, most of the people there didn't even have shoes. Wow. That's the level of poverty. And actually I had an aunt who passed away at 3 years old because of the, them not having enough food, food to eat. Wow. Yeah. So I mean, I, I'm talking deep poverty, right? And so I always knew at some level even if it was subconscious that we were in survival mode perpetually uh-huh. for decades but it wasn't until i started entering spaces like college and you know into my first career which was in advertising where i felt this profound level of uneasiness and you know at that point in time i actually used to have panic attacks and the panic attacks weren't the prototype of your panic attacks they were because the panic attack we typically believe is like there's an upsurge i can't breathe i look like i'm panicked and then eventually it dissolves mine was like day and night in panic literally like body in flames and it was just so normal but when it came to me now being this emerging adult in a working world and having to operate at a different level I was not. I I don't, I remember just not being able to reach my own potential because I was always like in this survival mode. So I knew in that moment, in that emerging adult moment, like 21, 22, 23, something's not quite at the normal rate of where I should be functioning. Something's up. I knew I didn't get help right away because I didn't really think or know that help could be available to me. But I knew that there was something that was different.
0: And so what was your experience like growing up that poor? Like, was it something that you were very conscious of and like in school? How do you feel like it shaped your experiences like with other kids? Yeah, absolutely.
1: I actually was bullied and teased for what I would wear, because what I would wear was I think it showed. My clothing showed that I didn't have the means to afford certain things. And so kids, you know, kids will be how kids will be, right? And so they they weren't that kind about it. And so I was very aware of my own inabilities to afford what my fellow peers could afford as far as like attire. The same goes for like, you know, sometimes kids would be like, let's go grab pizza after school and like mm. pizza costs, you know, $2. And do I have $2? So there were moments that were really like very showing in my own like economic discrepancies. So the messages were there all the time. I wasn't explicitly calling them out or, or
0: speaking to them, but they were there. I, I knew that there was a difference. And was the message from your parents, like you're going to work your ass off and be really c- successful? Or was that like a, a decision that you made internally where you're like, I'm not going to live this way.
1: You know, my mother always had an implicit message that we would go to college. So that was always like a, a no brainer. That will be a part of what, you know, I migrated to this country. So you're five, right? Of- five years old. Five. Yeah. Do you, and have part of- do you have memories of that? I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, you know, I arrived to the U.S. October 30th, which was the day before Halloween in 1991. And I remember vividly, like, the next morning, I woke up and all these kids are dressed in like Halloween costumes. And we're like, what world did we come into? (laughs) So it was very like, oh, we we are different. There was a very like, you know, clear messaging that we were in a different world. And, you know, with my mother, like she always tried to push us in the direction of like, trying to achieve, but she was very gentle with it. Like she would always say things like, be who you desire to be career-wise, right? Like there wasn't a push, like you must be a doctor, lawyer, this, that, you know, in order to achieve success and get yourself out of a state of poverty. It was just, I just want you to find your happiness in your career and be successful. And college is a place where you can, you know, try and, and get that. How many siblings do you have? I have, my sister is three years older than me and she and i are almost inseparable i think in part when we were younger i think we trauma bonded (laughs) now we talk about it all the time because we're like you know we've gone through so much together that it has unified us before it used to actually like create a lot of you know like a lot of ways that we just wouldn't get along but we have been able to have like really in-depth conversations about how much we have gone through and struggled together that it actually has like made us like build a strong bond
0: yeah yeah how did your experiences different like differ as kids what role did you play in your family my sister
1: as the eldest was actually almost like a second mom to me so Mm -hmm. she was a parentified child her Mm -hmm. childhood was and i talk about this in the book her childhood was stripped from her and Mm -hmm. i believe that it actually contributed to her, actually developing a chronic physical illness as a result, because she has always been the one to go to, the one to take care of everyone, the one to translate documents, the one to like work early on in her childhood in order to also supplement the income of our family, and then take care of me as a little sister that was only three years younger than younger, her. Mm-hmm. and so I believe that I had it a lot better than my sister and she is part of the reason why i was able to actually achieve the educational status that i have been because she has been willing to make sacrifices so that i can reach the levels that i have
0: Mm -hmm. and so were you scapegoated at all
1: yes because i think because i had a little bit more oomph to me (laughs) because i had more i was more of a rebel than my sister where she's like the people pleaser. I was able to call out a lot of things that we weren't doing right in my family. Even as a kid or a teenager? Quite frankly, I'm dating back to being a teen. I was already like saying certain things. I It was mostly in my emerging adult life where I started like, because I didn't know any other tools of how to do it, I started more forcibly kind of like in arguments, like, calling things out, right. Versus now, now with my family, I'm 38. And now I, I can take a bit of a step in the direction of more gentleness. But back then I was like, you're doing all this wrong, you know, and it didn't look pretty. And for many of us, that's the case, right? Like we just like, we just need things to be different. And I wanted them to be different also for my sister, because I love her so much that I'm like, I don't want to see her suffer anymore. I don't want her to be a people pleaser anymore, because I know this is causing her Not only an emotional injury, but it's perpetuating the ways in which she's carrying a physical illness that is an inflammatory disease. And what we know about inflammatory diseases is a lot of them are tied to stress and a lot Mm -hmm. of them are tied to generational stress and the ways that we, you know, self suppress, which is a lot of like those people pleasing, you know, qualities. And so I, in understanding a lot of those things, I started like wanting things to be different. And, you know, the only way that I knew how to do that is by, telling everybody all the things that they were doing yes (laughs) yeah just no filter no filter
0: and so then from being in your 20s and and having these the panic attacks and the stress starting to manifest what was the unfolding to realizing that this is trauma that
1: didn't come until later because Uh to be honest we just haven't had the language. And that's a disservice that we have as a general society. And granted, I know trauma, even in the landscape of mental health, is fairly new Mm -hmm. because if we think about you know like freudian times we're talking 1800s and whatnot like we just started in the last 20 25 years talking about trauma and we've talked about it internally within our own like clinical spaces it's only been since you know some new emerging texts in the recent 10 years that we've actually started getting that information out into the public so to give us grace as a society like okay we haven't had the language but It is also something that's caused a great disservice to many people that have been suffering in this way and haven't had the language to apply to themselves so that they can then take the first step towards healing. So it didn't really come until I was like in the middle of my doctoral program and actually having these aha moments that were also for many of us, which is the case, re-traumatizing because then you start realizing, oh my goodness, I am traumatized. And even that revelation can be traumatizing because you're like, now I have to adopt this identity
0: of a person that lives in trauma. And that's Mm -hmm. a lot. It's a lot. Mm -hmm. Do you have any profound, I'm sure you're familiar with the term like emotional flashbacks. Like what was a profound aha to when you were able to connect that, like, hey, I'm I'm being triggered by something. And like the reaction that I'm having right now is not about the present and it's actually tied to the past. Was there like a pivotal moment for you?
1: Interestingly enough, so a little bit about my immigration history. So my mother, my sister, and I, we migrated here without my dad. And my dad came when I was almost well, actually, I was 21 years old when he came. So I, I missed wow. him. And, Did you and, see
0: him at all in that time? We,
1: yeah, we would travel to the DR once a year for Christmas and we would see him then. And mind you, the, we're talking the 90s, right? Mm-hmm. Into the 2000s. So back then we had- No email, yeah, stuff like that. I actually have letters and I have one that's framed on my wall, a letter that my dad sent us in 97, you know, just telling us, I love you. Here's a picture of mm-hmm. me. This is what I look like. I mean, they were like, you know, all of that was there. So- we would have these experiences in the airport where we would have to say goodbye after Mm. a mess. And it was so, it was tears and pain. And Mm. I, now I travel a lot for work. So I realized early on in my travels that I would become panicked in the airport. Mm. And it wasn't until a couple flights in that I was like, And not only would I become panicked, but I would always believe that I was missing my passport. I would frantically look through my luggage and I would have this whole meltdown in the airport. And I was like, because the airport in my subconscious mind means that I must have a lot of deep pain and a meltdown in order for it to feel familiar. And so unconsciously I was reenacting that very Mm -hmm. same experience until I realized Every single time I had my passport, every single time I had, I I was always prepared, I was fine. But my mind needed to tell me that I must experience pain in this environment. And so that was a moment that really kind of like just opened up a portal for me.
0: How do you feel like that experience with your dad of him not coming with y'all and just seeing him once a year, how did that influence your template for love relationships?
1: Oh my goodness did it influence it? Because like, think about, we talk about father wounds or abandonment Mm -hmm. trauma or things like that, right? From the perspective of a father that decided to leave Mm -hmm. and decided to not be present or wounded in other ways, but not a father that wished to be present, but could not. Right. And so there's like these very painful memories of you know and also just the ideas around like who provides and you know there's so many so many narratives and so many implicit messages that i had to internalize that i didn't even know i was internalizing around you know a male figure that showed up a lot especially in my earlier years of dating and i had to in my mid 20s like really come to the honest conclusion that i had a father wound even with a father that always loved me and was always as present as he could be, that I could still experience that, you know, that inner, like, void. And Mm -hmm. that the way that I believe that it showed up for me most profoundly was in wanting to be taken care of in ways that perhaps would have been maybe unrealistic by men. Like almost like like being very almost like perfectionistic, like you must take care of me in all the ways, take care of my emotional needs, very codependent, right? Take care of my um, me, even if it's 50-50 split on bills, but like financially, you must meet the mark. It was almost like this perfectionistic, like you must have all the things and you cannot err because you airing like just makes me feel like, uh-oh, the, a void is coming and there's like the possibility that something, you know, could go wrong and maybe there's an abandonment wound that's going to be reignited mm. and like those things can get really scary and we, you know, unconsciously we start believing that you know, an abandonment can happen if a person's not meeting the mark if perfectionism isn't there and that for sure was like a very, you know, subconscious programming that was there early on in my relationships.
0: And do you think it had to do with the fact that just not having that and feeling like it's like making up for what wasn't there because your dad wasn't able to show up perfectly? Or what what were the underlying beliefs about yourself you think that were in part there in in the works there?
1: Well, the biggest one I think was if a person isn't showing up in that hundred percent, then there's a chance that they could be not as committed and motivated Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which means that it's like the precursor to them leaving Mm -hmm. which means that i am going to likely suffer an abandonment wound which is going to catapult me into that state of panic and deep despair that feels so familiar to those airport moments and it's so far-fetched when you trace the line all the way down you know to that to that core belief but that's really how our minds work our minds really get cemented in these core wounds. And then everything, our mental representations is what we call it kind of in the clinical language. We basically go right back to the wound and everything uh-huh. just tries to fit the wound. And it's not healthy because it, it, what it would do is that it would create this anticipatory anxiety in my relationships and I could not live in the present. I couldn't be in the loving present because I was so afraid of the possibilities of abandonment
0: yeah and then we like in turn manifest the thing that we're most scared of right because then we act in ways that then perpetuate that you know yeah
1: Yeah. how could you not yeah. right like you know fear is no place you know to like center love like you know when whenever we are a lot of our language starts developing around fear the interactions that we have with you know our partners are fear-based And I can only imagine a partner that is on the other end of that partnership being, you know, adjusting to a love that is fear-based. That doesn't feel good to them. And it didn't feel good to me. No, no (laughs) (laughs) ma'am.
0: What have you learned about your parents' upbringing that has been helpful for you in your own healing journey?
1: Well, one of the things that has been most prominent for me is learning about my parents' inherent resilience. I focused so much on their pain throughout Mm. my healing journey that I forgot, like these people lived nearly seven decades with, I I mean, like almost kind of superhuman strength to undergo Uh adversities that are even deeper than my own Mm -hmm. and actually surface from those adversities and do the things that they've done in their own lives. Like I was like, wow. My mother was just about my age when she had me and I can't imagine you know a woman like migrating to a new country with a little one such as myself and and another (laughs) little one you know and different language engaging in uh, different customs and you know and then also like scraping by right like with a low income position I mean I was like I don't you know I live a comfortable life at 38. I can't imagine what that was like and so for me sometimes like being able to really reflect upon their inherent strength gives me an opportunity to also remind myself that parts of my family live in me not only Mm -hmm. biologically but also you know like i was raised by these humans Mm -hmm. so i have some of that in me and it it helps me a lot in being able to you know navigate my day to day
0: Mm -hmm. and so what did your path to healing look like as far as modalities and then how did that help you to shape you know kind of your personal brand in healing this shit you know i was like incredibly
1: fortunate actually to have undergone this very rigorous training that was like super super unique it was a three-year fellowship that i actually got introduced to and brought into where was this was this, this- at columbia This was at Columbia. Yeah. So it was at Columbia Medical Center and it was in collaboration with the United States Health Services Administration and the grant offered one student myself an opportunity to to act as a clinician in different clinics throughout the Columbia medical system. So I was like in the OB cardiology, like actually providing therapy, but the therapy was to be conducted from an integrated mental health perspective, which we now call holistic. Mm
0: -hmm, And mm -hmm. so
1: it offered me an opportunity to understand how we can integrate the mind and the body into the work that we do as therapists. Simultaneously, I was also like I said, my sister had developed a chronic illness, which was lung disease. Uh-huh. And simultaneously, I was also taking care of my sister at that point in time. So the roles got very reversed for us. Mm-hmm. And I started learning the stress disease connections and learning about the ways in which you know, the, the mind and body when they're in a toxic cycle of toxic stress they start impacting one another. And I started bringing that messaging back to my sister, back to my family and back to myself, because I was also like, you know, feeling deep exhaustion. You know, a lot of like bodily like experiences, migraines and things of that nature in reference to stress. So I was so fortunate to, this was like just happenstance that I got introduced into this fellowship, but it informed a lot of the work that I brought back to my patients, but also back to my family. And then it informed not only my own healing journey, but now it informs the way that I now work with clients, which is as a holistic psychologist.
0: And what did the holistic approach look like as far as working in those various clinics? I mean, was there like a specific like protocol that you were supposed to be following, or they were just kind of like "have at it, lady, see what happens"?
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> actually,
0: I had um, I had like supervisors
1: one of which was already identified as a holistic psychologist. And she had published some books in reference to pain management through the process of, you know, meditation integrated into mental health. And there were people that were already, you know, kind of veterans in the, you know, psychology that was in essence kind of alternative world that were put in place to to orient me on how to do the work and bring it back to patients. So I was already, I was built in, in a really well-structured system. And so some of the practices were, you know, meditation, which eventually that transformed into sound bath meditations for me, which I integrate into my mm-hmm. work. There were also like, you know, emotional freedom technique, which we call tapping. There were a number of different recommendations around the ways that we structure journaling for people that are hoping to do this work in a, you know, kind of like complementary holistic way. And then, you know, there were other progressive muscle relaxation, other body practices that were also integrated into the work that were a part of that season of learning for me.
0: Was there a particular patient that had a profound impact on you?
1: Yeah, my first one who, interestingly
0: enough, this person, I worked with her
1: for five years.
0: What clinic was she a part of? She was still like, what branch?
1: Oh, well, she was actually, if she came in with a diagnosis of diabetes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So she was in one of the primary care offices and she was actually somebody that had been, which, you know, within hospital systems, they start flagging anyone who is being seen as like maybe overutilizing, let's say, the health system. system. Uh-huh. And so she was one of those people because she had come in to the ER seven times in one month's span wow. of time. And she believed that she was dying each time. When in reality uh-huh. what was happening was twofold. She was experiencing panic. So she uh-huh. was experiencing panic attacks for the first time in her life and believed that she was having heart attacks. Uh-huh. But simultaneously, she had also been actually having sugar upsurges in her body. So not only was her blood sugar high and she didn't know she had diabetes at that time, Mm -hmm. but she was also getting a panic attack. So if you can only imagine what her body felt like. So of course she felt like she was dying. It was very foreign to her. And so all of that was this, you know, clinical picture that I was presented with with my first client. And eventually when I actually got hired at Columbia Medical Center as an actual clinician beyond my training, I also worked with her. So it was like this beautiful moment of like transitioning, you know, into being a clinician for her for a very long time. But with her, you know, I, I remember just the faith that she had in me to be able to do things that felt very unconventional. She herself was also a Latina. And the ways that we were working were unconventional for me, but also for her. And she was willing to have faith in us meditating together or us doing progressive muscle relaxation together to help her body feel greater ease so that the panic would dissolve and that she would also integrate different ways to nutritionally feed her body and her gut microbiome and decrease the blood sugar spikes that she was experiencing and bring her body back into a state of mind-body balance in order to feel greater ease in her body. And eventually, I think one of the most beautiful things that we eventually got to doing was that she was a profound, and when I tell you I've never seen someone as profound as this, not even my own sister, profound people pleaser. I mean, to the extent that she also had four children, and she was even emulating those very characteristics to some of her children, especially her eldest daughter, and the ways that she disrupted those people pleasing practices in our time together, and then also started modeling that for her eldest was probably the the biggest therapeutic gift that I got in, in that season of my work because that was more of the sustainable work that we were able to do Mm -hmm. because we can talk to no end about, you know, the ways in which we can bring the body back to balance. But if you're still engaging in the very same people pleasing practices, we're never going to really reach equilibrium. And so that was and remains to be like one of the most memorable. And I, I, I just can never forget it, not only because she was my first patient, but it was The length of time that we worked on these very practices, the trust that she had in me and the ways in which she was able to absolve herself from so many of those people pleasing qualities that plagued her for such a long time. Do you
0: stay in contact with her?
1: No, because, you know, unfortunately, the ethical model of like care makes it so that we're not able to.
0: Well, (laughs) hopefully one day. (laughs) <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I do know that I transferred her the work that she was doing to one of my colleagues and I do know that they continue to work with her and it, it's more like sustaining the gains. Right. But I do know that they continue to work in the same ways. What about
0: from um, like a community aspect? Do you feel like there are like specifically within like the Latino community specific challenges or blocks to healing that you have been trying to tackle?
1: Yeah, there's this pervasive stigma. I think that there's a general stigma that we have in society around mental health, period. Trauma has an added layer of stigma. I think a lot of people are not willing to say trauma and me in the same sentence. And that you know, we cannot heal what we cannot see, we cannot heal what we cannot acknowledge. And if we are still in a place where people are like, trauma, I'm not touching that. You have no idea how many times I say trauma in one day, (laughs) but the ways that I, the variable ways that I get that people are willing to interact with me in conversation really tells me kind of where we are in terms of people's ability to really acknowledge that. Now, in the Latino community, there's an added layer. It just feels a lot more like there's a bit more of a a closed door in reference to these things, more than in our general society. And so it it can be a bit challenging because you have to, myself, I also trained in um, what we call Latinx mental health in a specific concentration that we had at Columbia proper, the actual school, not the medical center. Mm -hmm. But within that concentration, I was able to also adopt specific language that was culturally derived to really help map mental health for community members in the Latinx community that felt accessible and less stigmatizing. So I had to learn that language in order to have the conversations, especially in Spanish, because.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would think that it's in other cultures as well, but kind of that, that don't talk policy, Mm -hmm. right? Like we don't, we don't talk about what's going on behind closed doors is probably very strong. Yeah. Airing families, dirty laundry, as we call it.
1: Is prominent across the world. And I realized that not only in my work, but also in my research, I was like, wow, I won't butcher, you know, the saying in order to not, because it's in the Hindu language and I, I don't speak Hindi. Hindi? <laughs> yeah. But there is a, a very specific saying about not airing family's dirty laundry because it brings dishonor upon a family. And I I when I came across that saying, I was like, well that kind of applies all over the world. And why is it that all over the world, we have determined that that's a value that we are holding on to? And how can we now in this globalized technology centered world where we communicate with each other, with people in South Africa and people in Portugal and like, you know, where there's common languages being adopted, where can we disrupt that narrative? Where can we disrupt that common practice, and really air the secrets that continue to plague us from a place of shame, because we know that shame is a perpetuator of relapse. Shame is a perpetuator of continued re-traumatization, right? Like there's like so many through lines of shame that come from these like places of these values that we adopt in our communities and in our families that continue to disease our families in ways that make us not only, you know, physically unwell, but also contribute to our mental, like unwellness and like inability to really
0: feel calm and ease in our hearts. Did you have anything come up for you as you wrote this book? Like how did writing this bring stuff to the surface for you?
1: Yeah. You know, there was one chapter, which is a chapter on collective trauma. Interestingly enough, that we're already, we're talking about the cultural Mm -hmm. pieces because that chapter I rewrote. I scrapped the entire chapter and I rewrote it and I rewrote it in tears Mm. and I wasn't expecting that. I was actually, I would have expected that maybe because I have this one chapter called intergenerational inner child, which is the ways that, you know, our parents, inner children, when they don't get resolved and absolved in their generations, they risk, you know, the the point of transmission handed down loud, they become the inner child in us. There's many, many points in the book where I thought this is going to be the place where I sob and it was collective trauma for several reasons one because you know there are all these cultural values that kept coming to the surface even like the aspect of toxic masculinity and the ways that that robbed my father of his ability to really feel his feelings in a way that was humanizing right mm. like there were so many things that kept coming up but also because i felt this immense pressure and duty to do this chapter well for all of us and I felt like that to me felt so heavy and it, it put, a, I put a lot of pressure on myself in, in that chapter to do that chapter to the best of my ability so that I can offer as much of a lens to what needs fixing within our society for us to really create a society that doesn't continuously re-perpetuate trauma. So it was it, it felt like a very big task. And I remember even in the chapter, I said, if this feels like a big task to the reader, because it felt like a big task to me. And I offered like 10 reminders, right? Like we can each do just a bit. And that bit that we do, like what you're doing with this podcast, this is mm-hmm. this is something that is major and produces healing and is a part of how we then, you know, do the healing work. And if we each do one bit collectively, our collective efforts will also have a major impact. So we we don't need to do everything, we just need to do our part.
0: I wanna talk about this, inter, what is this intergenerational inner child? What yeah. do you call it? Yeah,
1: ooh, that's a, that's a big one. So I love that, I've never heard that concept, but I totally see it, go ahead. Yeah, I developed that language and the reason being is because I felt like the inner child language felt very limiting when it came to intergenerational wounds Mm -hmm. because the reality of it is that our parents, sometimes they show us their inner children. My parents are aging, as I mentioned, one of them is in their seventies, one's in their late sixties. And my sister and I have been having conversations about the fact that they're regressing. They feel Mm -hmm. like children again. And we feel like we're re-raising our parents because their, their inhibitions are lower and their filters are lower and we're seeing them in these very like tender ways. And it allows us to see the inner child wounding that never got resolved in them. And we're able mm-hmm. to also see how we see some of that in ourselves. So the in- intergenerational inner child is basically the inner child that suffered inside of your parents and the the wounding that they experienced if they themselves you know, came from a world where you know, they were oppressed or a family where there was domestic disputes and, you know, they, they had that inner wounding within them. They had to save their parent. My mother always had to save her own mother from a number of things. And then they themselves carried mm-hmm. that with them. And it created within them this tenderness that we as children, we were like, I must save my parent, mm-hmm. And we continuously feed into that. And so it becomes the inner child that lives in us. We start actually believing that we can save our parents in ways Mm. that are unrealistic. We start experiencing the wounding ourselves. We start emulating the wounds because as children, we mimic our parents a lot. And all of that starts becoming generational, right? Because now it's not just the parent that's wounded, it's also the child that is not only absorbing those wounds but is also engaging in very similar behaviors. You have parents that are people pleasers, and children who have adopted people pleasing qualities because they're modeled in their homes, but also because you know they interact with a parent that's a people pleaser, and they engage in those behavioral you know kind of dynamics with their parents and adopt the very same wounds in their own lifetime. And so when I started working with my clients from that perspective of let's also talk about How your mother exhibited some level of emotional immaturity as we call them right and ways in which that wounding and her like perpetuating guilt because she felt also like guilt was perpetuated in her own childhood and she perpetuated that onto you let's talk about the ways that that caused you harm even though she loved you she still did that let's talk about that right and so that intergenerational lens is, is, I think, really critical and just has been missing in the conversation. So I, I decided to add it on in this book and to really dedicate an entire chapter to it.
0: Anything else in there that you felt like really is not being discussed and needs to be? Yeah.
1: You know, holding
0: That's <laughs> that? the whole damn book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, the book is 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 really the intergenerational trauma has been spoken about in society, I think, in a very unidimensional way. Like we just haven't had a concrete comprehensive conversation about it. These are now almost 300 pages of working through intergenerational trauma. It's not just a book that you read, it's a book that you do. It's like literally every single chapter has A number of exercises. Yeah. Exercises, different ways to address the intergenerational inner child, different ways to actually engage in practices that can help you engage in your body in a way that helps you to absolve some of those epigenetic transmissions of trauma. You know, there's like a lot of different practices within. But the other area that I think is probably one of my favorites to talk about in the book is the intergenerational transmission of, you know, our nervous systems. We actually develop as a cell inside of our grandmother's womb, not our mother's, Mm. right? Like when our grandmother was five months pregnant, our mothers had already developed the precursor cells that would have developed into the egg that we would later develop into. Mm. And the same happens in our paternal line. The the male fetus at five months of gestation already develops the precursor sex cells that would have eventually developed into a sperm. So, and that is in the grandmother's womb. So we are at some point in our lives living as three bodies in one grandparent, Mm. parent, and ourselves. And they whatever experiences our grandmothers are having, like if they're stressed, if they, are in domestic disputes, if they, you know, are experiencing economic depravity, like whatever experiences are, they're having that is producing stress for them, is filtering stress hormones into their bodies, which is filtering into the fetus, which is your parent, and then onto you. So three generations are experiencing the same stressor and actually regulating and like modifying the genetic code to say we're in a stressed body. And we're not having conversations about then, okay, so if we're doing therapy, why are we not accounting for all of this? Mm. The fact that we have been in a state of survival in a state of stress for decades, for generations. And that when we're talking about actually undoing some of the trauma that exists in our family line, we also have to go back to the body where it all began. It all began through stress hormones, it all began through genetic encoding. So we have to go back into the body and find ways to increase the calm response rather than, and replace the stress response that has been living there for such a long time.
0: Has there been any recent research on epigenetics that's been particularly profound to you? I had Mark well in on like a year and a half ago and I asked him that and I can't remember what he said. Something about rats, it's always about rats, right? Oh my goodness, <laughs> I was
1: literally gonna take it there. Yeah, but
0: let's go, let's go. But
1: but the one about rats that I find to be like super fascinating, which is like, and I, and I think that it's an opportunity really kind of to nerd out is the fact that, so basically like, you know, if anybody is familiar with like triggers and the ways that triggers mm-hmm. work, one area of triggers is, or one way that we get triggered is through our senses, right? So sight, smell, you know, it's something that we taste that reminds us of the past, it reminds us of an experience that we had that was traumatizing. And it brings us back into that moment where we're like, oh my, I feel like I'm back in trauma, right? Mm-hmm. So that's in essence, you know, how it works. And the sense of smell specifically has a a, a very direct way of being internalized into the brain because Mm -hmm. our sense of smell goes directly into our limbic system which is connected to our nervous system so what we have been finding recently is that there are ways in which intergenerationally we actually have scent memories or scent triggers that can come up for us which I thought was fascinating. And they did some of this with rats that were like actually introduced to the smell of cherry blossom. And then, you know, they received like, I think it was like a shock, you know, unfortunately this is the way that, you know, kind of the labs work, right? But then the children of the children of those same rats had actually- Would have experienced... a stress response when they would- Exactly. Smell when they would it. Smell wow. cherry blossom, yeah. And so, you know, and I've, I've actually experienced some of, those scent retrievals and scent memories not only in my own personal life but also with clients i actually included one in my book that a story of a client that had actually had this scent memory around coffee but it, the fascinating part of his story was the fact that his mother actually had the same kind of repulsive like response to coffee and so did his grandfather and his grandfather had actually been assaulted by someone physically and Prior to the assault, it, it seemed as though the perpetrator had actually had coffee, and there was like he he just remembered the smell of coffee, and and so the the scent of coffee actually connected to, with him uh, to assault. Like he felt like mm. whenever he smelled coffee, he felt like trigger, right? And so I I found it to be really fascinating how. Then two generations later, we're still having that very same stress response, or as it, you know, as my client would say, it was kind of his stomach turning, you know, in reference to coffee. And so I was like, that's so fascinating. When we're like starting to like really kind of understand memory retrieval with regards to scent, and memory retrieval with regards to all of the senses.
0: What are we doing with the client if they don't have that information? Like coffee pulses them gives them a mm-hmm. reaction, but we don't have the information about what happened in prior generations. How are you working with them? Somatically? Somatics, exactly.
1: We go back to the body because it's the body that's responding. It's the body mm-hmm. that's reacting, right? And it's not to say that we do like exposure around coffee, but we do do, you know, at least a settling of the body in reference to what people find to be triggering. And that's always the case because like the body is so miraculous and so be responsive to healing that it has so much capacity within it should we trigger it in that direction to actually Mm -hmm. create new neural pathways in the brain new ways in which our nervous system actually you know defaults to calm and ease if we practice enough of the practices that can help get it into that space what we know about some of these like somatic practices and nervous system restoration practices is that we need an approximate three to 400 repetitions of these in order for them to really cement in our minds and bodies and like really concretize as, okay, we're in a calm body, not in a stressed body. And when I tell people that they're like, whoa, 400, 300, that's I ain't got a lot. time for that. But let's think about it for a second. Like if you do five minutes of deep breathing a day, We have 1,440 minutes in a day, five of those minutes you can devote to deep breathing. That's already doing an an enormous amount of the work that you need to restore Mm. your nervous system. If you do that every single day for an entire year, you've already done the 365 that you need to already at the end of that year be existing in a body that is more programmed to feeling ease and calm than it is to feeling stressed and traumatized. So when we're we're talking about us living in these bodies for 30, 40 years that have been in hyper alert and in the the stress response and in a chronic state of feeling threatened, and we're devoting a year of our lives to deprogramming that, it kind of almost feels like, well, that that feels like a gift, you know, that feels like something that I can do. Right. And, And so like when we break it down, I feel like it feels more tangible.
0: Mm-hmm. Would that be, if you were going to give somebody a suggestion of like one somatic practice that they can implement, would that be it?
1: It would, 100%. Mm-hmm. And I, I I like to do pairing in my work. So, and and you'll see that, you know, the book is also reflective of a lot of pairing, which means that I like to pair one relaxation exercise with another to increase its potency. So typically what I like, to instruct people to do is to do what we call progressive muscle relaxation, which is basically as you breathe, tense the muscles in your body. And as you exhale, release the muscles of your body. And that also helps your body to release the tension that's being captured through stress and trauma. So I like I like to do that, you know, in layers, because we're talking about layered bodies and layered traumas and layered experiences of stress. So you know, the work needs to be layered as well.
0: Last question. How have conversations been with your parents as you've been learning all this stuff and have they been receptive? You know,
1: the <laughs> conversation. <laughs> okay. com- I mean, realistically, right? Like yeah. the conversations okay. have not been easy to begin with, which has also created a lot of growing pains for me, but also a lot of understandings of how to create roadmaps for others. I actually Mm -hmm. have like some, you know, like a script and a couple of other like tools for having difficult conversations inside the book. And some of that also stems from the what not to do, which is what I did, which was like pointing fingers and yelling and saying, you didn't do the work. And, you know, Mm -hmm. and and frankly, like, you know, now I feel kind of compassionate and sometimes even saddened for my parents because... They suffered a lot, and you know, at this moment now, they're so receptive and they're like willing to have the conversations with me. But it doesn't mean they always put things into practice, and I have Mm -hmm. to be willing to accept the fact that they're gonna be exactly who they are. They're, you know, they're they're doing the best that they can, Mm -hmm. and and what I say to myself, and then what I say in the book, and to clients is we have to grieve what they're not willing to do or what they cannot do Mm -hmm. we have to take in whatever it is that they're willing to change if any at all even if it's microscopic and then grieve the rest and allow ourselves an opportunity to just feel you know like the rest of the work can just continue within us
0: it's beautiful thank you okay so beginning of the year this shit comes out
1: January 2nd. Yes. The, nice.
0: I, I'm, I'm starting to think it's
1: the year of the cycle breaker, although, you know, my, that's my hope. But I, I'm such a, you know, I'm someone who really believes in our motivation and capacity to heal. And I hope that that, I, I really hope to see it play out. I hope that people are willing to break these cycles. And especially because, you know, we owe it to ourselves, to our families, but also to the next generation so that they don't have to exist in the deep pains that we've had to absorb. Anything else you
0: got going on that you're jazzed about? Are you gonna do more podcasts? I am actually
1: I will be doing a couple episodes of my podcast. It's called Break the Cycle. Also. And I'm actually gonna bring a few of my family members on. So it, it should be interesting.
0: Nice. <laughs> yeah. I love you, Juicy. People love yeah. that. Yeah, I've done a few episodes with siblings. Mm-hmm. And that's been so fascinating to hear, you know, not just the the different experiences that they've had you know, it's, it's amazing how they can, siblings can have dire opposite experiences growing up in the same home. You know, it's fascinating.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. well,
0: cool. Well, I'll include all of your shit in the show notes and I'm thank really excited you. to to read this and thank you for doing such important work on such an important topic. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. It's such
1: a joy speaking to you. You know, I know it's heavy stuff, but it's necessary stuff. And I, and that's I, what we do
0: here. We, we talk about
1: yeah. yeah, I'm grateful that you're you're willing to have these difficult conversations. This is how we heal and, and you know, when we dig into the the hard stuff.
0: Well, that wraps up today's episode. As always, I hope you heard something that could help you on your own journey. as always, I know you did. As always, if you did not seek help immediately. Thanks again to Dr. Mariel. I thought that that was excellent. Let me know what y'all thought. I love to hear insights, aha, whatever, feedback on the episode. So it might hit a girl up. Let me know, folks. And go check out the show notes for links to to all of her shit. It's a little late, folks. Okay, it's a little late. I should have had this shit done a while ago. But I'm feeling optimistic about things, guys, because I finally, I need to give myself props for this. I'm actually starting to get some interviews banked up, okay? Like I'm getting some interviews banked up. This will allow me to hopefully not be trying to finish these damn episodes. At the midnight hour, fingers crossed, I think, I don't know if I've shared that I hired an assistant. So I raised money through the shit show community, which allowed me to to find a virtual assistant. And her name is Camille and I, I fucking love her. She's helped me get my act together, so... Camille, I love you. You're doing a great job. So damn the joint shit show. Give me a damn follow on the TikTok, on the Insta. Give me a damn five-star rating. You know all the things. If you are listening at this point and you still have not given me a five-star review, you're kind of an asshole. Uh, okay, well, I've seen shit shows next week for another fucking amazing episode of Adult Child. It's gonna be super raw, super vulnerable, super sad, if you already it's gonna be a goodie, I promise.